It's hard to believe that we are nearing the end of our series on Revelation. And I appreciate everybody listening in to Understanding Revelation. I hope it's been a really impactful experience for you. Reading through Revelation and studying it myself has been really transformative in terms of how I understand the Old Testament and and reading through it and studying it in depth and having to teach it has been a really great experience for myself and certainly hope that it's been that for you. Um, I'm going to be recording this episode and then the next episode is the last episode. Um, So again, appreciate you guys for tuning in. If you hear some birds chirping in the background, it's because I have the uh, door open in my car. I record these in my car. Uh, We're very low budget here. But uh, just to get some better sound quality. But, uh, you know, it's just too hot. It's, it's the Florida heat. It's coming in and, you know, I don't want to pass out. So if you hear some background noise, that's the explanation for that. But let's look at Revelation 21 today. And I think it'd be helpful to understand how impactful these last few chapters of the Bible, the entire Bible, are in terms of understanding the overall arc of the narrative of the Bible. The Bible begins with creation. It begins with a marriage, a husband and a wife and a garden surrounded by rivers and precious stones. And it ends the same way with a new creation, Christ and his bride, and a garden turned into a city built with precious stones and flowing with living water. The Edenic image is all over these final chapters. And this is meant to teach us something. God fulfills his plan for creation in Christ by the spirit, reconciling his sinful people to himself. He will be their God and they will be his people. That's the promise that runs through the entirety of both the Old and the New Testaments. And the church, adorned like a bride on her wedding day, is about to meet her groom. And the the goal of everything is communion. Communion with God is the the ultimate goal of life, which is why Revelation ends with, with a wedding. The church, the bride, is preparing to feast with Christ her groom in the new creation, with death defeated and every tear wiped away. And that's how it works. Out of a union between a man and a woman, out of a union between a marriage, comes new life. And here comes new creation, the renewal of all things. This is Understanding Revelation. Revelation 21 depicts the new Jerusalem at two different points in time. In verses 1 to 8, we see the final form of the New Jerusalem. And in verses 9 to 27, the idealized but present form of the Holy City. The New Jerusalem symbolizes the church as evidenced by the usage of the term in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, the heavenly Jerusalem. uses another usage in Galatians 4, 26, where the church is referred to as the Jerusalem from above, which is free, and she is our mother. And this chapter features a myriad of Old Testament images, which demonstrates the fulfillment of God's purposes in redemptive history through the work of Christ and the Spirit. So John receives two visions that provide a blueprint that not only shows the final product, what the church one day will be, but also the process of getting there, of how the church ought to be built. So let's look at the first eight verses, the church in splendor. This is a vision of the church that is uh, the, the glorified church, the church in the new creation. So Revelation divides into four visions given to John in four different locations. Vision one is on the island of Patmos, Revelation one to three. Vision two is in the heavenly throne room, Revelation four to 16. Vision three from the wilderness, which is Revelation 17 to 21, eight. And 
finally a vision four, which takes place on a high mountain. And Revelation 21 actually splits and it shows a transition between the third and fourth visions, which, which we're going to note. But Revelation 21 verses one to eight ends the third vision with the new Jerusalem descending from God like a bride prepared for her husband, Christ. So I'm going to read these first eight verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus defeats his enemies in a wedding procession as he approaches the altar. Now, after Revelation 20, after the millennium and the defeat of Satan, death, and Hades, Christ marries his bride, and the result of that union births a new creation. That's where we get this term, the new heavens and new earth. And that actually comes from Isaiah 66 verses 17 to 25, which depicts the new creation in terms of old creation language, peace from enemies, fertility, prosperity, and joy. And this is how Old Testament prophecy works. Isaiah's prophecy contains two horizons. The first horizon is a near fulfillment, which is the return from exile out of Babylon, the the nation Israel returning out of Babylon, And the far horizon is the future state of glory described in Revelation 21. And the way this works is that if you think about a mountain range, you'll see two mountains and they look like they're right on top of each other. But if you actually go up to the mountain, you realize they're separated by miles of of roads and, and landscape. And that's how prophecy works. To the prophet, it looks like it's all on top of each other. It's all gonna happen at once. But in reality, there's time in between those two mountains that from a distance looks like one flat mountain range. So how we read this back into Isaiah is this. When Isaiah talks about the new heavens and new earth, he's thinking about the near horizon, the return from exile. But when the Israelites returned from exile, you can read it in Nehemiah and Ezra, it wasn't the same. They didn't have a king. They weren't prosperous like they used to be. The temple wasn't back to its former glory. So the return from exile can't be the fulfillment of God's vision. There must be a future greater pattern or a future greater fulfillment yet to happen. So this is pointing toward not just the redemption of the land of Israel or the people of Israel, but all of creation itself. There's a further horizon. So Christ's death and and resurrection inaugurates this new creation. It begins that process, but the fullness of this redemption will not appear until he returns. The new heavens and new earth represent both a continuation of the present order, as well as a radical transformation much like how Paul describes the radical transformation of our resurrected bodies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So that's, it's kind of a tricky way of understanding the way that, um, that, that Old Testament prophecy works. But just to understand this, Revelation 21 is saying, this is what everything's pointing to. 
return from exile, the resurrection of Christ itself is all pointing to a future greater resurrection of the whole cosmos when God wipes away all tears. And that's what we see in this new Jerusalem, in this new creation, there's no longer tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. So obviously that hasn't happened yet. But the new creation's glory is not just in the fact that those tragic things are absent, but the new Jerusalem is characterized by who's present. God himself will be with them as their God. He himself wipes away their tears. The glory and joy of new creation is communion with the living God himself. God gives living water for his people to drink. But the cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, they will not receive this new creation. Instead, they will receive the second death, which is referred to as judgment, eternal judgment. Remember in Revelation 20, the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection, a glorification into heaven. The second resurrection is our physical resurrection. The first death is our physical death, and the second death is eternal punishment in the lake of fire. This refers again to God's eternal punishment, where the damned experience the light of God's presence as burning fire. That's what happens when sin encounters a holy God. And the pain that they feel is the anguish of being in God's goodness as sinful, evil people. The Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, rather, within the new creation ends John's third vision, which lays the foundation for another perspective of the new Jerusalem in the fourth and final vision. So remember, this is wrapping up the third vision where it ends with the new Jerusalem. And then the fourth vision is gonna begin with Jerusalem again descending from heaven, but now from a different angle. That's the church in progress. The first angle was the church in perfection. Now this is the church in progress, verses nine to 27. So John's first and third visions occur on the first earth, the first creation. His second vision unfolds in the first heaven. But here from the mountain, he glimpses a new creation entirely. Remember, heaven and earth are created realities. God created both the heavens and the earth. And both heaven and the earth are gonna be transformed at the return of Christ. The resurrection has changed things both in heaven and on earth. Now, Moses stood on Mount Nebo and saw the promised land. That's in Deuteronomy 34.1, but he wasn't allowed to go in. Ezekiel stands on a very high mountain and sees a glorified temple, Ezekiel 42, but he's not able to enter the temple. John sees in full what Moses and Ezekiel saw only in part, the new Jerusalem church, the new temple of God, but symbolically idealized in the present church. Okay, so this is a little bit of a tweak. Uh, One of the things that John sees, or rather uh, Ezekiel sees and uh, Moses sees is they see, again, they see a blueprint of the future. And blueprints show the final structure, but also all the inner workings and really the process of how to get to that final structure. And I think this second vision of the new Jerusalem descending is coming at it from a more provisionary standpoint. It's going to show elements of the church that are perfected, but also elements of the church that are, that are present. And I think you'll start to see that as I read this passage. So Revelation 21 verses 9 to 14. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. 
The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each of the gates made made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. A lot of stones to pronounce there. So most commentators view these passages as a recapitulation or a restatement of the first vision of the New Jerusalem that we saw earlier. It just has more detail. But there's reasons, I think, to say a little more than that. The first account of the New Jerusalem in verses 1 to 8 features enemies already in the second death, and the inhabitants of the city are secure. In contrast, the second account in 9 through 27 still features nations and kings bringing tribute and gates that prevent the unclean from entering in, signifying the continued presence of sin. Now, some commentators take the constantly open gates as a kind of universalism in which sinners post-death receive an opportunity to enter into the New Jerusalem. But I don't think that bears ground. I mean, that's an unorthodox position, and I think there's another way to interpret this. Peter Lightheart interprets these two New Jerusalem accounts as the visions of the same city at different points in time. Verses 1 to 8, we see the church slash New Jerusalem in its final state, but in 9 to 27, the church in the present age as God's city that brings light to the world and draws the nations into its gates. So it's more of a present vision, although idealized, rather than the final state of the church. We can see all this Old Testament imagery also in this description. So the high priest in the Old Testament wore the 12 precious stones that served as a foundation for the city. The 12 gates feature 12 pearls. Pearls come from the sea, which signifies the Gentiles, and it demonstrates the incorporation of the nations into God's people. The city dimensions itself form a perfect cube, which matches the dimensions of the most holy place, which is the most sacred part of the temple where God dwells, where the Ark of the Covenant is. In the temple, Only the high priest was allowed to enter the most holy place, which housed the presence of God. But now, by the blood of Christ, all believers can now enter into his presence. This new access forms the central argument of the book of Hebrews. Christ, our high priest, transforms the church itself into a priesthood and a living holy place where the Spirit of God dwells. Further identification of the new Jerusalem as the present church lies in the foundation of the apostles. Paul describes the church as a living building built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2 verses 20 to 21. The church built upon the apostles forms the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, and the new temple with the spirit in their midst, which which builds up the structure. So, We can see a little more of this as we look at Revelation 21, verses 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. No temple exists, not only because Christ will destroy it in the near future of John's 
Revelation in 70 AD, but also because the church is indwelled by the Spirit, which makes the people of God the living temple of God. And the Spirit of God and the Lamb dwells in our midst, right? That's the promise of the new covenant and turns us into a beacon of light, which in turn draws in the nations. This is a symbolic way of describing the Great Commission. The nations bring not physical riches, but glory and honor. That is the worship of God, the true treasure. But those who are unclean must be cut out of the church. It is the community of the redeemed, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this is an idealized picture that the glory of God dwells within the church. So we don't need a temple anymore. We don't worship in a temple anymore. We are, are the temple itself built up as living stones. That's a vision of the church. So John's third vision ends with the final Jerusalem. But his fourth vision ends with or begins with the present Jerusalem, the church. You might think to yourself, well, my church doesn't seem like a city of gold built on precious stones, bringing light to the nations. That's because the church is a work in progress. Paul describes the church as building itself up to the fullness of Christ. That's Ephesians chapter four. That means we're not yet what we one day will be, but the blueprint is there and we're getting there. This is a picture to aspire to. And by God's grace, we will see it come to completion. But the glory of Christ is that he sees in sinful harlots, a beautiful bride. God sees his church in splendor, even though he's fully aware of her faults. And we need to have a vision of her in the same light. We should have the same vision as well. The church is not a perfect place, far from it. But she is Christ's perfect wife. She is Christ's bride. He chose her and he will lay down his life for her and wash her with his word and make her spotless and blameless for the wedding. And we get to be a part of that. That's what we get to build. That's the command that we have in Revelation. To see how God sees the church. He sees it brimming with glory despite her faults. And there's also a call for the purity of the church to cut out those who bring uncleanness into it, but also to welcome the nations in. For by the light of the church, by the glory of the gospel, will people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come into the gates and rejoice and know the glory of being God's people and know the glory of knowing the God who made the first creation and is making all things new into a new creation. Mm -hmm.